Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I was raised as a classic Pentecostal. I wasn't, I wasn't raised in the charismatic movement. I was raised uh, classic Pentecostal. Uh, we were greatly influenced by the, the charismatic movement. And there's, there's different elements that come into play there. Uh, but as a classic Pentecostals, we, we had our limited view of what the baptism of the Holy Spirit was about. And uh, it's very much about that, but it's not only about that. And so I want us to have a fuller view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What is God, why does God give us his spirit and why does he baptize us or immerse us in his spirit so we're going to do a series on that we'll probably spend four to five weeks on that subject and i looked and we're going to be able to land this thing on pentecost sunday so get ready if you've not yet received the baptism of the holy spirit you will Uh, we're going to see the lord baptize people in the spirit and i'm telling you the baptism in the holy spirit will change your life Uh, and so we're, going to be, we're just going to be unpacking that over the next number of weeks. But in order to get there, uh, we, we gotta, we, we're going to look at this morning. I want to look at how Peter uh, and, and Paul both, you can see this in both of their lives. Peter, again, last week we talked about why were there three crosses at Calvary. And we talked about how Luke showed it to us from a narrative, the three crosses. But Paul showed us the three crosses theologically from Galatians Chapter 6, verse 14, he said, uh, God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world was crucified unto me, and I was crucified unto the world. So Paul talks about three crucifixions in that verse. There was Jesus' crucifixion, there was the crucifixion of the world to us, and us to the world. And so we had these three crucifixions. So we have Paul unveiling this thing theologically, whereas Luke told it to us as a story. The, what, what, uh, what we're looking at this morning has that same, uh, that, that same way that we can get at these, this truth we want to look at. We look at Peter's life and we have this narrative. We have the story, Peter's testimony of what he went through that prepared him for Pentecost. There, were, there was a work that Jesus did in his life and even used the enemy to accomplish it. Jesus told Peter, the enemy is going to sift you as wheat. But I'm praying for you, and when you, when you get on the other side of this thing, you're going to train others. You're going to minister to others going through that. And all of that was a preparation of Peter's heart for his Pentecostal baptism, for the immersion, the endowment of power from on high. We also see this in Paul's life. We don't so much have his testimony the backstory. We don't have this narrative passage talking about how what Paul went through. We have a theological teaching from Paul in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And we see the same work of God in his life, that God did a work in Paul's life to prepare him for the baptism in the Spirit. Romans 6, 7, and 8 is a famous passage, famous, you know, uh, several passages of Scripture. Uh, Many of you are familiar with that. Romans 6 talks about how we're crucified with Christ. We are are dead. Uh, We were baptized into his death. We were crucified with him. Romans 7 shows how that 
old man, we, we struggle because he still lives. Paul was saying, I'm struggling. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So Romans 6 is the deliverance, but Romans 7 is the contradiction. Well, what's going on? If I'm really dead, if I'm really saved, if, I'm, if I've been crucified with Christ, why am I still struggling with my flesh? And Romans 8 is Paul's pneumatology or his study on the Spirit. It's a glorious passage. It's been called, it's been called the sparkle on the diamond of Scripture. Romans is called the diamond on the ring. And if Romans is the diamond, Romans 8 is the sparkle on the diamond. It starts with no condemnation and ends with no separation. It's an awesome passage of Scripture, but it's really Paul talking about what the power of the Spirit does in us as believers. That as believers, we, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. That's just a King James version version way of saying, you want to overcome your flesh? You want to overcome sin in your life? It's by the power of the Spirit within you that you do so. As Pentecostals, we emphasize the baptism of the Holy Spirit as an endowment of power for being a witness. And that's valid. There's scripture for that. It gives us boldness to preach the gospel, empowered to preach. The non-Pentecostal holiness movement they emphasized that he is the Holy Spirit. And the baptism in the Spirit gives us power to overcome the flesh. And there's scripture that speak of that. So you can say that in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we get inward power and external power. Internal power is I'm going to overcome me. External power, I'm going to release the kingdom on others. And both are valid. But we need to understand the way to overcome the flesh is the power of the Spirit. He didn't just forgive us of our past. He empowered us for our future. He didn't just say, you're forgiven, but you're going to live in in defeat. You know, you're going to sin and get forgiveness. Sin and get forgiveness is going to be this up and down life. He's going to endure us with power from on high. And one of the components of that empowerment of the spirit is to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. It's to enable us to live above the sinful nature, to live powerful over the flesh, so that we are not just forgiven, we're free. And so we're going to look at these these themes, but I want to look at Peter's life, and I want to look at Paul's testimony, because there's something that happened in both of their lives that is a crucial, often overlooked element of preparing us for Pentecost. It's a work that God does in our life that if we don't embrace it, if we don't understand it, if we don't cooperate with it, If it doesn't happen in our life, at best, we will live in a shallow expression of the power of the Spirit. You want a deeper experience of Pentecost? And for those of you that aren't familiar with that terminology, Pentecost was a a Jewish festival. It was the festival of harvest. It was 50 days after the Passover. And the Passover was when Jesus, as the Passover lamb, gave his life for us. So our salvation was purchased at Passover, but we were empowered at Pentecost. And in a very real sense, from heaven's perspective, that was one event, two sides to one event, and that was, that was our experience. And that's why Pentecostals talk about the full gospel message. Where do I find scripture for that? In Luke chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptizer, He's baptizing, 
people, and he says, there's going to be one coming after me. He said, I'm not even worthy to tie this guy's shoes. He was talking about his cousin. He said, this guy that's coming after me, I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. What I do with water, he was the baptizer. He would immerse people in water. He said, this picture that I do with water, I put them in the water, and they come up dripping, saturated, soaked with water. He will do with the Holy Ghost and fire. What a vivid picture. Do you want to be drenched? Do you want to be dripping with the Holy Spirit of God, that third person of the Godhead? That's what the baptism in the Holy Spirit is. Salvation is you taking a drink of him. He's in you. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is you taking a bath in him. You're in him. It's one thing to have the Spirit within you through salvation. It's an entirely other thing for you to be in the Spirit. And we see both of those, those ideas reflected in Scripture, but don't mix them up. Those are two different phenomena. And so John says this. He said, the one coming after me, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. He's going to immerse you in his spirit, and you will come up dripping. He's saying, what I do is a prophetic picture of what he's going to do. But his is not going to be in water. His will be in the Holy Ghost and fire. And then Luke adds this after John's comment there. He says, and with many other words, he preached the good news to them, the gospel to them. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is part of gospel preaching. It is part of the good news. It's part of the gospel. If you only have salvation, you only have part of the good news. I'm not saying that that makes you a second-class citizen. I'm just saying that you don't have all that he wants for you. And for that matter, none of us yet do. There's always more in God, okay? And one of the... One of the and the reason I say that is one of the criticisms against Pentecostalism is that sometimes it feels as though we're presenting it as that we're this higher class of Christian. That is not the case. But you can't get away from the fact that Jesus gave us a promise of something good and we should want everything that he has. Amen? And for you to reject it based on some, some misunderstanding and say, well, I have got everything I needed at salvation... You've got to make sure that that squares with the word. And Jesus clearly taught there is a second experience of grace called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of it is to empower you, to saturate you. You took a drink. The Spirit is in you when you got saved. But you are in the Spirit when you are baptized in the Spirit. And so that's what we want to look at. And so both Paul and Peter had the dealings of God, and we see this same pattern reflected in their life. And I'm telling you that it's the, it's the experience of everybody that wants to go deeper. If you want the most out of your Pentecost, you've got to get the most out of your Passover. If you want more of Pentecostal outpouring, then you have to ha allow the, the, that Calvary experience to work its way in you. You can put it this way. If your grasp of Pentecost is merely doctrinal, it's merely philosophical and not experiential. That you have a doctrine that you've never entered into. If it's something you believe, but it, you've never encountered that as a real experience in your life, then I would tell you, you need to go back and examine your, feel, your experience of Calvary. Because what happened in both Paul and Peter's life 
was they didn't simply grasp a doctrine and believe it. There was an experiential element that was an outworking in their life of Calvary. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. And there's something of the cross being applied to our life experientially that prepares us for a deeper baptism in the Spirit. The depth of our experience of the cross will pave the way for the depth of our experience of the Spirit. So that's what I'm going to try to communicate this morning. So we need to pray. At my age, you know, you need help. Someone said, you don't look too bad for 71. (laughs) Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray that you'd speak to us this morning. And Lord, help me to articulate this principle very clearly. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, let's look at... uh, Let's look at Luke chapter 22. Let's do that. There's several places we could start. Luke chapter 22. Look at verse 24. This is at the Last Supper, uh, right up to the end. They're, They're having their last meal with Jesus before his crucifixion. And look what goes on. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Can you imagine The audacity of these guys. They're just arguing which one's greater. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater than the one who is... Then, then the one who, the one who at the, is at the table, the one who serves. Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. Now, just pause there. In John, he shows us that this is where he arose, took off his robe, put on a, put it, wrapped a towel around himself, and he washed their feet. It's really a prophetic picture of God removing his rights to deity and taking on the form of a servant, the towel of humanity, and coming and washing us of our sin. It's this prophetic picture, but it's how Jesus lived his life. He said, if you're going to be great, you've got to be the servant of all. And then he says this. This is interesting. You have stood by me in my trials. He's talking about who's greatest. And he shifts gears. You who have served, who have stood by me, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's talking about how they stood by him in his trials, and he's going to confer upon them in a kingdom. He's tying this thing together. Standing with him in the trial releases authority on our life, is what he's inferring here, okay? Because the word kingdom literally means a king's dominion. It's the right to rule. He said, I'm going to release upon you the right to rule. And then he says this. He turns to the, 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 the loudest apostle, the one that's kind of the spokesman. If there was a leader among them, a functional leader, maybe not the uh, assigned leader, but he's the functional leader. That's Peter. And Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. 
And so Jesus warned him, you're going to come through a, a time, the enemy, I've given him permission to sift you as wheat. Man, that is not the word you want to get in a prophetic line. <laughs> and you don't have to wonder, was that a word from the Lord? It was from the Lord. <laughs> Jesus gave it to him. You're going to be sifted as wheat. I'm going, to, I'm going to take you through an experience, and that which is usable is going to remain, and that which is unusable is going to be separated from that which is usable. It's a similar thing that what John was saying that Jesus would do. When John, we, we said that John said, uh, the one coming after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. The very next thing John says, and his winnowing fork is already in his hand, and he will separate the chaff from the wheat and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's a picture of what the harvesters would do. And he's saying that Jesus is coming to harvest something out of you. And the way he's going to do it is he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. What was the purpose of the fire? It was the holiness part. He was going to burn up that which is unusable. When they would harvest grain, they would build a threshing floor on the highest place in the field. They would tamp it down with, with uh, clay so it would be like a hard floor and they would throw all the freshly harvested grain on that big floor at the highest point in the field. And then they would take a large wheel. It would look like a Fred Flintstone car. Okay, big old stone wheel and they would crush the grain because there was a, an external husk that was surrounding the grain and they'd have to break the husk to get at that which was usable, that which could be used to feed others. And it would break down and then they would take a winnowing fork, which was like a pitchfork, and they would throw it up in the air and that's why they would have that place at the highest place in the field. So that the wind would blow and it would take the fluff, the husk, that which is not weighty and usable to feed others, and it would separate the grain from the chaff. And in this case, it, Jesus was going to do something different, John said. Most farmers would be satisfied just to separate, not Jesus. He's going to scoop it up and burn it with, listen to the language, unquenchable fire. This is Peter's fire. He's about ready to go into the blast furnace of the unquenchable, quenchable fire. And Jesus said, Satan is going to be the, the, the servant. He's going to be indentured into servitude. He thinks he's going to take you out, but I'm praying for you, and he's going to be used to do a work in you, and on the other side, you're going to be usable. And I'm telling you that this prepared him for this empowerment of the Spirit in his life. So what happened? This is at the Last Supper. They go to the, the Mount of Olives and they go into prayer. And uh, G, look at verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On the reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw behind them, beyond them and knelt down and prayed and said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup. An angel came and, and ministered to him. Uh, verse 46, he comes back to the disciples and they're asleep. Why are you sleeping? He asked, get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the, and the man with the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? 
When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. That was Peter. Peter was the one. When, when Jesus told him, You're gonna, Satan's going to sift you as wheat, look at verse 30. I didn't read you 33. But he replied, this is Jesus or Peter's response to Jesus. When Jesus said, Satan's going to sift you, Peter says, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and even death. And Peter was sincere. He wasn't blowing smoke. He wasn't, he wasn't saying something that he didn't really believe in his own heart. But that's what the Lord was out to correct. Peter's estimation of Peter. He had to show him where he was really at. In order for God to use him, he had to get him to the place where he saw himself accurately. And so Peter takes out a sword and lops off the right ear. And What an amazing picture. Jesus picks the ear up. The guy's name is Malchus, and he puts his ear back on, and he's healed. I don't know about you, but I would have been like, oh, I'm out of here. You know, you guys can arrest him, but I ain't in on this. I don't, I, me and my new ear would have left really quick. <laughs> and so look at verse 54. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. Listen to this. Peter followed at a distance. What a poignant phrase. He followed at a distance. Jesus, or Peter wasn't following closely. There was already a distance beginning to emerge in his relationship with Jesus. Things weren't going down like he expected. One of the tests of our intimacy with God is when, when things begin to play out contrary to our expectations. Do we stay close or do we start following at a distance? Jesus already knew what was in Peter's heart. And all of this was part of his preparation for his baptism, his infilling. Peter was entering the time of the cross as much as Jesus was. We said last week when we saw those three crosses and Paul defines those. Paul says that the world was crucified to me and I was crucified to the world. The world... All of humanity was under the judgment of God at Calvary. God sentenced them or sealed them all up to disobedience, Paul said. He sentenced the entire human race as guilty and, and crucified them on the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that one died, so therefore all died. The catch is that not all were resurrected. By faith we enter into his resurrection. So the world was crucified to us. But not only was the world crucified to us, we were crucified to the world, Paul said. The Greek word there for I is ego. Ego was crucified. But ego was still very much alive in Peter's life at this point. Peter was making claims with his mouth that his commitment couldn't deliver on. And it wasn't that Peter was blowing smoke. He really thought, Peter thought more highly of himself than he ought. And so as Jesus was coming into the time of the cross... So was Peter. So were all the other disciples. And God was going to show them their heart. You see, the, the cross, the application of the cross, we talked about this last week. It's not, there, there's the facet of the cross that Jesus died for us. And that's a wonderful thing. That is the foundation of everything else. He died for me, and therefore I can be born again. But we also need to move into another facet Another perspective on the cross. And this is more of a process, an experiential thing, 
where we die with him. That we begin to enter in and God begins to deal with those things in our life. So we side with him against ourselves. So he died for us, but we also died with him. And so it says that as he followed at a distance, but when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked at him closely and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. I have to keep backtracking. I didn't read all my text. So Jesus tells Peter, he's talking about giving the kingdom to people. And the context of him giving the kingdom was those that stood with me in my trial. And Peter was about to disqualify himself from that one criteria. He said, I'm going to give you a kingdom. And then he looks at Peter. Peter, by the way, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. And he's going to, but I'm praying that you'll make it through. And Peter pipes up, Jesus, I'm ready to not only go to prison, I'll, I'll die for you. And he believed it. He pulled out his sword and started hacking ears off. I doubt if he was aiming for the ear. Peter was serious. But when things began to transpire, contrary to Peter's expectations, Peter started withdrawing. What was Jesus' response to Peter when he said, I'll die for you? He said, Peter, he just, I think he smiled at him, knowing Peter. He said, before the rooster crows the third time this morning, you will have, de- or before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. It's verse 34. I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will have denied me three times that you know me. And Peter's thinking, there is no way that that is going to happen. Have you ever been there? Where you thought your commitment was greater than it really was? Where you thought you had more in you towards God than you really did? That is a devastating discovery if you're sincere. That is devastating. And that's exactly what happened to Peter. In a short amount of time, he's denied Jesus three times. And look what it says here. Look at verse, oh, look at verse 60. Or look, look at 59. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Ugh. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. So he was close enough. He was in the proximity of Jesus. The rooster crowed, and Jesus looks over at Peter, and they catch each other's eyes. Can you imagine Peter loved the Lord. When Peter said, I'll die for you, he wasn't wasn't blowing smoke. He pulled out his sword. He was ready to go to battle. But he didn't understand the ways of the Lord. The Lord wasn't going to go to battle with him. The Lord was going to give his life. And everything that they thought was going to happen, Jesus is going to come in. He's going to be the king. He's going to overthrow Rome. We're going to be on the right hand. We're going to rule and reign with him. All of that was true the ruling and reigning part, but the way to get there was a whole lot different. And when it starts transpiring differently, Peter found out what was really in his heart. And it says, and, and every the, one of the Gospels say this, verse 62, and he went outside and wept bitterly. There was this devastation in Peter's heart. Peter was so disappointed in what? 
in himself. And that is a necessary process in the Christian life. I know this isn't a hallelujah message, but I'm telling you, you have to be broken of you. I'm not talking about confident in your giftings. You need to be confident in your gifting. I'm talking about relying on yourself to sustain you in your walk with God. God takes us through a time where he will show us who we really are. And every man and woman of God that has, is worth their salt has that as part of their testimony, part of their history, part of their story. Again, we see it from the Apostle Paul. Let's look here. Look, look at Romans 6, 7, and 8 really quick here. You know what? I, I'm sorry. I've got to finish my message. We're going to run out of time for the egg toss. I'm sorry. I really wanted to do it, guys. But this is more important. Who thinks the word is more? No, I'm just kidding. That, would, that wouldn't even be right, would it? Put that on you. Romans 6, 7, and 8. Okay, let's look at this real quick. Look at Romans 7. Look at... Look at verse 7 of chapter 7, Romans. What shall we say then? Is, this, is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed I, indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life to me, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Now we know in chapter 8 the problem with the law was not the law. It says the problem with the law was our flesh. My sin that the command sprang forth rebellion within me. If there's a sign do not, do not touch wet paint, there was something in me from a little child that looked around and wanted to go put my finger on it. It's that sin within us. For sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to uh, put me to death. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me so that what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Now listen to what he says here. Look at verse 21. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in my member, the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature I'm a slave to the law of sin. Now, there is a debate among theologians, among Bible teachers, on whether this is speaking of Paul pre-Christian or post-Christian. Was this his testimony after he was saved, and this was, this was indicative of the struggle as of a believer, or was this his testimony before he got saved, and then we move into Romans chapter 8, and that is the born-again experience. I personally believe this is the experience of Paul after his salvation, I'll tell you why. Paul, in this passage, he says, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? 
He's found that his conscience was awakened, and now he's struggling to live up to the standard of the law. But we know Paul's testimony before salvation in Philippians. He said, when it came to, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. When it came to the law, I was spotless. I was flawless. He said, I was a righteous man. Before the law did not awaken his heart. He, he wasn't convicted. He, he looked at himself as, I am righteous. I am flawless in my uh, adherence to the law. After he got saved, his conscience was awakened. And so now he's struggling. I understand theologians, I understand teachers' uh, hesitation to make that application I'm making because a lot of people look at this as the normal Christian life, Romans 7, that that is just how the Christian life is. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. And that's just the struggle of the Christian life. That is not the case. This was something that Paul went through until he received the revelation of what Romans 6 was to mean to him. That you are dead and therefore you are free from sin. And there are a lot of believers who have not entered into that revelation and struggle. And so we need a revelation of Romans 6 that we are dead. And God will, God will use our experiences like he did with Peter and he did with Paul to show us our heart until we come to the end of ourself. And we realize our righteousness is not in ourself, it's in Christ. And that's where we break into Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is Paul's pneumatology. It is his teaching on the spirit-filled life. It is not a coincidence that verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation. That is the key to the spirit-filled life. As long as you are trying to live by your own righteousness, you are susceptible to condemnation from the enemy. You, the enemy will leverage your failures to keep you out of God's presence. But if we understand what we talked about a few weeks ago on the blood, that my approach to the throne is the blood of Jesus, the life that's in his blood, his finished work, not my works, but his finished work, that I'm accepted because of what Jesus did and not what I do or don't do, then that relieves me of that condemnation. I can come boldly before the throne of grace. The way the Lord brings us to that conclusion is to uproot our confidence in our own flesh. To bring us to the point where we recognize. And that's a different scenario for all of us. Depending on how stubborn, how self-righteous, and how ignorant you are. Uh, ignorant is probably not the best word. Depending on your grasp of the gospel. that you, We go through the, this this. This scenario where God begins to reveal to us, we don't trust in ourselves. Some people get there quicker than others. It took me about five years of walking with the Lord, literally. I lived under condemnation and struggled. And it, it, it was like I was trying to earn God's forgiveness, earn that relationship with God. And that will keep you from living the spirit-filled life. It is not a coincidence that Peter went through this in, in uh, in the book of John, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then he moved into Acts, and he was restored in John 21. We've got to come to the point where we believe in the finished work of Christ, and that prepares us for the fullness of the Spirit. There are a lot of people that have experienced 
the spirit coming on them, but they can't sustain that spirit-filled lifestyle because of their misunderstanding of their approach to God. They're still trying to earn their relationship with God. Calvary, grasping Calvary, prepares you for Pentecost. Understanding what he achieved at Calvary paves the way for you to live in the good of Pentecost. There's a reason that order took place historically, theologically, and even psychologically. Because when you understand what he accomplished at Calvary, it enables you to come boldly before the throne of grace, not based on your own works, but based on what Jesus did. That's why in John 21, we see the restoration of Peter to ministry. In Luke, he said, those who stayed with me during my trials, I confer to you a kingdom. And then he looks at Peter and tells him, you're not going to stay with me in my trial. Isn't that interesting? But he restores him in John 21. Now in John 20, he sees the resurrected Christ. Jesus walks right through the wall and presents himself to his disciples. And Peter, James, John, they're all there except Thomas. They're, they see the resurrected Christ. Yet in John 21, Peter says to the disciples, hey guys, I'm going fishing. Why? Why would Peter return? Yeah, Steve's like, I'll go with him. He was going to return to fishing as a lifestyle. He was leaving his calling and going back to his earlier vocation. Why? He had already seen the resurrected Jesus. It wasn't that he was disillusioned about this thing. I thought we were going to have a kingdom, and now Jesus is dead. Now he's realizing, this, this, I, I understand even less than I thought. Now he's alive. This thing's bigger than I thought. I was in on the ground floor of something bigger. And yet he's saying, I'm going back to my old way of life. I'm going back fishing. Why? Because Peter was disillusioned with Peter. He thought, I, I, I'm not the guy. I, I can't, God, you can't use me. And that is where we find this beautiful passage in John 21 where they serve, where Jesus makes breakfast for the disciples. Peter's out there fishing, and he looks on the shoreline, and someone yells to him, hey, throw your nets on the other side. And they didn't recognize it was Jesus. But he recognized the command. He threw it in. And it says in this scenario that though there was a great load, their nets did not break. When Jesus called them the first time, he told them to do that. It said their nets broke. They couldn't hold it. The next time, he said it again. He's recalling them, <laughs> both meanings of the word. They're in recall. He throws the, the net in, and it says that there was such a great load, but their nets did not break. But something in Peter broke. And he said, it's the Lord. And he, he grabs his cloak, and he jumps in the water. He's got to get to, he can't wait for the boat to get there. You guys take care of the boat. He's got to get to Jesus. And he goes to Jesus. Isn't it beautiful? Peter has cursed his name, said, I don't know him. And what is Jesus? How is Jesus going to deal with this? I'm going to make you breakfast. We're going to talk about this, Peter. And he restores him. Three times Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Remember that? Do you love me? And Peter, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. If you look in the Greek, Jesus said, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter said, Lord, I phileo you. Peter answers differently. He doesn't use the same strength of the word. 
And the last time, Jesus even says to Peter, Peter, do you really phileo me? And it says that Peter was hurt because he asked this this third time. And Peter said, Jesus, you know I phileo you. See, what happened in Peter's life is God, Jesus, was bringing him down to the base level of this commitment. He was saying, Jesus, I don't have an unconditional commitment, but I like you like a brother. And Jesus was essentially saying, I can build on that. I just need you to see yourself correctly. And there's coming a time where people will lead you where you don't want to go. He was talking about when Peter was going to be crucified. You will stand with me through the trial. But to get there, you need to understand who you really are. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.